What's up, everybody? Welcome to Mixed Tapes. I'm your host, Eric Stangland. No interview today. We're going to do something different. We're doing a lot of different stuff on the pod. And today, we're going to talk about the 30th anniversary of Metallica's Black Album. This album came out August 12th, 1991. And I got my friend in the house. And we're going to talk all about this record, what it meant to us. You know, all these great questions I want to ask him. And I'm going to put him on the spot. I've known him as long, almost as long as this album's been out. My friend, Breda. What's going on, my friend? How you doing, man? It's great to see you. Hey, man, thanks for coming on the show. I, uh, I see that you dressed in all black like I did, too, which we have to do, right? Absolutely. That's a necessity when you're talking about the Black Album. Absolutely, man. And, you know, the Black Album's a trip to me because I remember where I was when I actually heard not the album, like the single, because Entertainment was a single before it came out. So do you remember where you were when you first heard it? Oh, without question. It was a, a landmark day for you know, 15 year old Bredo. <laughs> right. Um, I was, in, I was living in Tonopah at the time. And, and for people who don't know, Tonopah, Nevada is a tiny, tiny little town. There are maybe, there were maybe 1500 people in the town at the time. And it's in the middle of Nevada, right between Las Vegas and Reno on the highway. It's the only highway to get there. And there was nothing, absolutely nothing, no record stores. There were no real radio stations. We had one radio station that covered the entire central Nevada area. And it was adult contemporary. It was your girl, Belinda Carlisle. It was, uh, <laughs> you know, people like that, that you just never, ever heard anything hard and heavy. So the only exposure that I had to any kind of music like that was through MTV, which back when they played music and, you know, people actually had videos and stuff for their albums. That was the best way for any of us in my town to hear anything that was new, contemporary, heavy anything other than just you know your standard 80s you know late 80s early 90s just uh you know adult stuff um so i was it was uh end of july 1st of august when they debuted that music video but they've been pumping it up on mtv for a while talking about it and you know my exposure to metallica had been kind of limited to that point because i the one video you remember that they used to play that in just heavy rotation oh yeah for, for a really, really long time they did. And that was really what kind of got me into Metallica at least a little bit. Um, other than that, the only people that I knew that listened to them were, you know, the guys that were, you know, the smokers in school who wore the Metallica t-shirts and stuff like that. And the, you know, the Slayer jackets and, and all that. Right. Um, and I had never really had an opportunity to hear it. I was hair metal guy, you know, I was just the stuff that I could hear on MTV. And, you know, the few albums that my friends had, um, I had gotten into Bon Jovi on my own earlier than that, but you know, nothing like Metallica until the one video. So you, so here's what's interesting from being from such a small town. Did you have to go to Reno or Vegas to buy your music? (laughs) Um, yeah, days of pre-internet, we had to go, um, the closest place that we could go anywhere that had music of any sort was about two hours away, it was 120-ish miles or so to Bishop, California. And that was the closest place that had so much as a Kmart. Okay. So there was no mall within four hours of where I lived. There was no music stores. You know, Sam Goody wasn't a thing in my town. Um, nothing. So you were limited then in terms of what you were listening to. So you don't really have the background of Metallica. Now, did you... Did you hear most of Injustice or anything before that, before the before the Black Album? No, you didn't, did you? No, no. The only wow. thing that I got, the only thing that I got was just the the video they put in rotation, and every now and then I'd stay up late and watch Headbangers Ball and maybe catch a little something else. But I mean, it just to me back in those days, it was all new to me and just thrash metal and you know, changing tempos and just how they structured their songs, which is so complex that it was hard for me to wrap my brain around. And it took me a while to really get into even that song in particular. And it took them playing it all the time for me to really get into it. See, we're going to have a great conversation today, man, because we come from such different backgrounds in that sense, because I, I grew up in New Jersey where there was probably four or five record stores within 10 minutes of each other where I lived. I was playing guitar in 88. So I, I had, I mean, I had the Kill 'Em All tab book. I had the Injustice tab book. I had the Master of Puppets tab book. I was a full-on Metallica fan 
back then. So it, the contrast is going to be interesting. So I, I'm looking forward to really picking your brain about this because this is this is going to be a good good show. I got a great feeling about that. Um, so when you heard the song, what was your initial thought? Since the only other song you ever heard was one, is that correct for the most part? The only one that I'd really ever given a lot of time to sure. was one. Sure. And so Enter Sandman was just to me a, a real change of pace, a big difference from anything I'd ever heard from them before. And, you know, it was just a, it sucked you in, you know, just the, just the, how it builds from, from nothing. And then the guitars punch in over the top of the drums and then they get into the groove and it's just, you know, it really just grabs you. Or it really grabbed me when I was young. And, you know, it, it was one that I was able to latch onto immediately. And I knew that I really liked it at just in that moment. Um, I don't know if you remember the video, but the the video was oh um, yeah, yeah. I mean, so you you know how well the video kind of played with the song and the lyrics oh, yeah. and and all that, and it was just dark and it was different and heavy, you know, comparatively speaking, and it just it really reached out and grabbed me, and I was like, man, I got to hear the rest of this. I got to hear more of that. And because there were no music stores, you had to wait till a friend of yours went out of town to drive someplace that had it, and so. One of my friends ended up getting it. Um, this was a couple months later. Actually, it, it took months for me to actually wow. listen to the whole album because just nobody I knew had it. Yeah. And you know, here I am. I'm 15 years old. I can't drive it. I can't go by myself. And I had to be. I was you know slave to wherever my parents went. Sure. And we never went to a music store. You know, I'm not going to say, hey, you know, mom, you listen to you know ABBA and the Bee Gees. Do you want to go buy me the Metallica album? <laughs> Yeah, she'd lose her mind. So that just, it didn't happen for a couple of months. I ended up ultimately borrowing it uh, from a friend of mine at the time. Um, he ended up unfriending me because it took me a long time to return the album. to <laughs> That's awesome. What a great story about that, man. I, I love that because it's like, you know, nowadays we can pull up anything anytime we want to. It's an amazing thing, right? But there's something to be said about you know, you having to really want that album and wait for somebody, one of your friends to go out of town to come back with the album because you couldn't drive and stuff like that. My recollection, I mine is clear as day. I remember they were pumping it up on the radio and I was staying with my mom in Vegas, visiting her um, in, over the summer. And I was talking to my girlfriend at the time and uh, I had a little, you know, boom box and the radio station's like, in the next hour, we're going to play the new Metallica song. So I'm talking to her on the phone and I'm like, all right, when they play this, I got to go, and then I'll call you back after, right? So then the you know the the guys are getting ready to play, and of course, what do I do? Get the tape, right? Hit record and play. You know what I mean? Because that's yep. the way you're doing it back then. And then I remember listening to it, and then getting done, and just going, hmm. And that was my initial reaction. Like, I don't think I like this, like at all. Like, I just doesn't this doesn't speak to me at all because I was really into the heavier you know, progressive sound of Metallica, especially like, you know, and Justice for All being the album before that, and it took them three years to make this album. Essentially, I was like, I'm not really feeling this. You know what I mean? And I remember calling back my girlfriend and being like, yeah, I don't really like this tune. And uh, I remember going back home to New Jersey for starting school, and I remember how Metallica was like the big thing now, where before... It was it was like just you know like you said like your Heshers and like all your you right. know those kids were like the metallic which I was definitely in that group you know what I mean my pot smoking and um, <laughs> and uh, like now it was like cheerleaders like Metallica no offense to cheerleaders by the way and I was oh, like sorry. and I just going uh oh you know what I mean so that was right, like right. my initial response on the record um, let's break it down a little bit so there's there's a decent amount of songs on this record there's there's twelve songs on the record. Right. Uh, Sam Man leads off the record and it's, and it's their biggest song uh, on that record I believe maybe nothing else matters is bigger I don't know it could be a toss up but Sam is number one Sabbath True is number two Holier Than Now is number three The Unforgiven is four Wherever I May Roam in your show see you're old school you got the CD in front of you I'm yep. reading off of CD. Uh, there's a track listing <laughs> yeah see I, I'm reading it off of the internet see you're still old school dude I am I'm old school till I die <laughs> so uh wherever my realms five don't tread on me through the never nothing else matters of wolf and man the god that fail my friend misery the struggle within 
So one of the things I want to talk about this record, and this is this is just my opinion, but let's let's kind of hash this out. Do you think the record's too long? Yeah, absolutely. I do um, too. I, I just, for me, when I was a kid, because this this type of music, this style of music, was um, so new to me, it was heavier than anything I've been listening to. It was honestly difficult for me to get through all twelve songs every time I listened to it. Um, you talk about initial reactions to the album. My my initial reaction was that it was one of the best side A's that I had ever heard. Like those first six songs on the album were incredibly tight. They were just back to back bangers. I could listen to that all day long. And then you flip to the other side and the first couple, they don't quite grab you like the side A did. And then you get to nothing else or the first one rather um, through the never does grab you quite like side A. And then you get to nothing else matters. And that's the other song you want to hear that's on side B. And, you know, of Wolf and Man, you listen to the lyrics, well, you know, cheesy, kind of silly, talking about shape-shifting, oh, okay, you know. And then by that point, I'm just starting to get that burnout, you know? Yeah. But I would never really make it past the God that failed. That's about where I would just have to stop and listen to something else. I'm with you on that. I felt like this was the big part of the CD era and how CDs, you could make you know, you can make them longer compared to cassette tapes and stuff. So I think bands took advantage of that or labels made them write more songs. In, in my personal opinion, I could get rid of the last three tunes on that record and be totally cool. Even Wolf of Man, I could get rid of that one too. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of Don't Tread on Me. I think you can cut that record to a nine-song record like back in the 80s, early 80s, and you you can have a pretty solid record. Um, it's, it's one of those ones that I, I think it, it almost seems like it didn't affect it because it became the biggest selling album in SoundScan history because SoundScan right. started in 91, um, which is a tremendous feat because they were only selling a couple million before that. And that you could see the trajectory was going up. I mean, you didn't really because you were in Tonopah. You well, know, I mean, MTV we, News had, you know, blurbs on it. And they talked oh, about it yeah. all the time about how it was the first album to debut at number one on, you know, Billboard Top 200. And, you know, for a metal band to do that, that was insane. Huge news. It's 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 an amazing record. That's why we're talking about it today. Um, what song would you? What songs would you get rid of if you had a chance to be a record label exec and say, "I don't. I think you guys should kill these tunes," or even a producer? Obviously, either one. Um, I would. Uh, I would have probably gotten rid of, of Wolf and Man. Yeah. Um, probably my friend of misery. Yeah. Um, I, those two, you could put them as B sides if you want to. You know, hidden tracks. Um, box sets, whatever. Um, I would I would probably dump those. Maybe don't tread on me. Um, I would have before we started this process. Um, when I was doing my research for this uh, podcast, I would have been, immediately said, "Struggle with it. Get rid of that song. Can't stand it. Hate it." Right. And then I listened to the album again and listened to it all the way through because I you know wanted to be fair, wanted to be ready. Yeah. And you know how you sometimes have an album where you just kind of neglect a couple of songs. You just skip past certain things. So you want to get to the next one. Yep. Um, I've done that for years with this album and it was usually like the last two that I would just go on past. So it's kind of like listening to an old song with fresh ears that you just really haven't heard much and listening to it. You can really hear on struggle within just kind of that thrash feel. There's, it feels a little bit like older stuff. Yeah. And, Obviously, I've gotten more into Metallica over the years, so I'm, you know, a little bit more versed in some of their thrash stuff. And it's just really kind of cool to listen to that now in retrospect, whereas I didn't I wouldn't have that experience at the time. So I think it's a great point. It's, it's an interesting record for me because that record grew on me and I feel like a decent amount of this record still holds up today, which you can't say about a lot of that time period. You know what I mean? Right. Where a lot of that time period sounds dated. And I think one of the big reasons why is Bob Rock as a producer and engineer just got some amazing tones. It's it's the first yeah. time that Lars's drum sound actually sounds great. Uh, the snare drum right. and sad but true and the kick drum also. I mean, just monstrous when that riff kicks in. It's like, holy Christ, that's just, you know. And I think the songs that weren't the hits were the songs that I enjoyed you know, even though Sad Butcher was like a semi-hit, that was a really important one. I liked Through the Never a lot, too. Through the Never yeah. reminded me of, like, some of their earlier stuff. Um, but you did see the left turn, you know. You could right. definitely see that they were going in a different direction. Um, how do you feel the whole the album holds up today? 
You know, um, I think that it's like you said, I absolutely put a lot of credit on Bob Rock for making it the most, um, I wouldn't say slickly produced, but definitely the most professionally produced album they had done to that point. Oh, hands down. Um, without, without question at all. Um, he was able to finesse the best performances out of the musicians to that point in their career. Um, I think that he probably worked with them a little bit on their song structure. And I, I knew they made the conscious, the conscientious decision to um, cut back the songs and, you know, drop down from where, you know, everything on justice was eight to 10 minutes and, you know, lots of different, you know, progressive sounds and, you know, tempo changes, time changes. And they made the, the choice to kind of edit themselves. Yeah. And I think, I think Bob Rock had something to do with that in studio as well. And, um, you know, he, he just, he brought the bass out in Metallica, you know, yes. <laughs> every album, every album before black album, you could barely hear the bass and, you know, it was by design, but bringing that up in the mix of this album just makes a world of difference. And that's one of the reasons it holds up, honestly. Yeah, I agree. I also think the, the way the album's EQ'd, the way everything has a place within the EQ makes all the difference on it not losing. It's weird to say it's heaviness because I don't think it's a heavy record per se, but it still has elements of that. And you don't lose that sound when the bass becomes more apparent. Some bands do. Like I always felt like Tool's first you know, full-length record, I feel like the bass was so loud on that record, it just kind of, it kind of diminished what the guitar was doing. And that yeah, it makes, the, it makes it muddy. Yeah, and, it's, it's a slippery slope. Or it doesn't right. make it heavy. If there's too much bass and, it's, and the bass is in the mid-range section, it kind of eats up what the guitar is doing. I felt like Bob had a really good sense of that. And, you know, Bob also did Dr. Feelgood. And Dr. Right. Feelgood was kind of like a template of what Metallica wanted their sound to sound like. Not, not the song structure, but the actual right. sound. I mean... Bob's done some amazing stuff. Uh, the the stuff on a Motley Crue record with with Karabi singing um, is such an underrated gem, and the kick drum is probably one of my most favorite kick drums on any metal record ever. Which sounds crazy, but you got to listen to that kick drum. It's unbelievable, and you can just tell Bob knows what he's doing. So, do you think that was the beginning of the end of that band? Even though that band is a stadium band still. They're still ginormous. But do you feel like that was kind of like the turning point, fork in the road, end for that band? I don't know that I'd go so far as to say it was the end. It was absolutely the turning point. Um, everything was downhill for them, relatively speaking, after that. Um, it was the last truly great moment for that band. I think that they have never achieved anything really close to those levels of greatness and, and those peaks that they hit back in 91, 92, 93. Um, I'll even take it as far as through, um, I don't know if we're able to swear on the podcast or not, but yeah, go for it. Okay. Live shit. Um, live shit was, you know, it was a live album, but that was that like their tail end of the black album era. Mm -hmm. And it just, that was it after that. Um, I think Jerry Cantrell said it best when friends don't let friends cut their hair. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was a shock. Maybe we'll go down the load anniversary one of these days, but I remember opening up that cassette back in the day because I definitely rocked the cassettes more than the CDs because I was a broke college kid. And I remember just going, everyone's wearing nail polish and they have their hair cut short. And nothing against dudes wearing nail polish. I'm not against that at all, but it was like, it was such a like 180 from the way they looked. It was like, whoa, like what is going on with my, you know, not my favorite band anymore, but like a band I still really dug, you know? Absolutely. Um, so here's a question I have for you. What's your favorite song on the record? Um, it's a good question um, because, it, you know, hindsight changes everything. And, sure. you know, looking back on it 30 years later, I'm going to say something different than I would have said back at the time. Okay, for, do do both then for a lot so, of reasons. So do do um, when you were first when you're 15, you first heard the record, and then give me today. Let's do that. That'd be fun. For, yeah, first album, uh, for, first favorite song off that album when I was 15 would have been uh, Nothing Else Matters. Okay, and I just I really got into the the juxtaposition of the softer guitars and how it built into the stronger, louder, heavy guitars and just the whole swell of the song all the way through. It just it really played well to my ears at the time. Okay. Um, it's the softest song on the album and right. 
you know, to my ears, I wasn't used to hearing a lot of harder stuff and heavier stuff. Sure. Um, now over the years, that song, you could say it's been overplayed. Um, <laughs> it's <laughs> put it politely. You, you could argue that. I mean, there, there's a case to be made. And today, um, another one that's probably overplayed, but my favorite song on the album is wherever I may roam. Okay. Good choice. Um, and, and the reason for that is it's to me, it's kind of a time and place song. That was the single that was getting the heavy rotation when we started our freshman year of college. I mean, they were really, really pushing that on the radio at the time. And, you know, you'd hear it a lot. And when I went down to the, to the mall, one of the, the first Metallica shirt I bought was the wherever I may roam shirt had that great illustration by Putzhead on the front and the lyrics on the back. And I wore the hell out of it. I'm sure you remember that. Yeah. Yeah. I remember. <laughs> and you know, it just, um, they were tempo changes. There was a sitar sound. It was just a little different than a lot of stuff on the album. And it's just, it's just really, it's just really a cool song. It's just, a, it's a good track. I, uh, I, I'm a guitar teacher by trade. And so I've definitely taught a ton of stuff off that record. And I still do. I was joked that the Holy Trinity is enter Sandman, um, uh, sweet child of mine and, um, back in black. Those are the three tunes that always seems like, you know, students are wanting to learn. Um, but I've taught, I've taught probably, I probably taught five songs off that record, like consistently. Right. So I have a different appreciation of it too. My favorite tune 30 years ago and still to this day, sad, but true off that record. And I just, I just think it's got a great heavy feel. I'm, I'm, I'm more of like a sludgy doom type of, you know, metal guy. And, uh, that just riff is just so monstrous when that snare kicks in. I just, I love it. Um, where my room was a great tune too, though, because you're right. It, it was very dynamic for them and it still had Hetfield kind of in his Metallica voice. You know, where right, you start right. to see how his voice started changing on that record, I felt like that still could have been like, you know, something that that was a bridge between Justice and this and and Black. Obviously, I felt like as it went into Load, then he started singing more, and my interest kind of waned. And it's not because I don't like singing; it was just it just wasn't him. Like his choice, right. his tonality, I wasn't a big fan of, and you could tell how much the singing, like in Nothing Else Matters and Unforgiven. And songs like that were so huge that you can tell that was the way they were going. Um, so yeah, it's kind of funny to say I, I think the same the same song is is my favorite song thirty years still. Um, I also have a deeper appreciation for the Unforgiven because I think there's a lot of cool underneath guitar Tony type of stuff in that song that's really interesting to me. Let's get to your least favorite song on the record. Well, you know it's funny that you mentioned the Unforgiven. <laughs> Is that your um, least that's, favorite? That's probably my least favorite song on the album. And wow. uh, it, the, it's because it's been so overplayed over the years. I like what they did. I mean, yeah. from, from a songwriting perspective, it's, it's really well done. Um, what it sounds like is really well done. It's, you know, at one time in my life was a cool song, but if I hear it on the radio, it gets changed. I yeah. Mean, it's, I, it, that's I a skip that. on Spotify. <laughs> I, I respect that. Um, <laughs> you want to guess which one I hate the most? Uh, the one that you teach all the time would be my guess. <laughs> you are absolutely correct. And you know why it's not that? Because I love teaching whatever. It, it, even if I don't like the song, I love teaching the song to a student because I like seeing the student get excited about learning something. I can't stand that damn song because I had to play it all the time in cover bands. Well, and yeah, and that's the thing. It drove me bonkers. Um, saturation. And I, and I also think it was the song that, you know, basically made me go my Metallica is not my Metallica anymore. As funny as that sounds. Do I think no. it's the worst song on the record? I don't. No. But for me, it's a song I, I, I don't like. It's really the song I like the least, to be honest with you. Um, well, and, and that was the question. What's the least favorite, not what's yeah. the worst song on the album? Yeah, I, I, it, and it's hard. You know, It's hard to judge worst songs and stuff because, you know, we don't have you know, 16, 17 million albums under our belts, you know, selling albums. Yeah. So it's very hard to say, hey, true, this true song story. sucks. <laughs> and they go, where's your songs? You know what I mean? So right. I, I try to, as I get older, I try to respect that a lot more. Did you get to see this tour? I didn't see this tour, but I okay. saw the live shit tour. I saw their last go around when they still had long hair. So like their, their last blast, their last gasp. Did you see it um, in Vegas? I did. I caught them at uh, Sam Boyd. And I had uh, Suicidal and uh, Candlebox and Fight opening up for him. Fight oh, wow. was the, the last minute replacement for Alex and Chains, who was supposed to be on that show. Okay. And 
that's kind of what led to the whole friends don't let friends cut their hair later is because Metallica was giving them a bunch of shit on stage about you know, Alex James was supposed to be here and so on and so forth. And um, incidentally, that was an introduction to both Fight and Candlebox, who I gained a much, much bigger appreciation for after that particular show. But um, Metallica was a headliner and Metallica blew everybody off stage. They were just amazing. And by that time, again, 94, or was it 95? No, it was 94. It was, but it was just summer, summer 94. It was, the it was last, summer 94 for sure. Yeah, the last part of summer 94 is when I saw them. It was hot as hell down in Vegas, and it didn't matter. I was on the floor. I was surrounded by, you know, 10,000 other people just like me, standing, you know, in close proximity back before we had to worry about dying from that. Right. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> It was just, it was phenomenal. I had, you know, expanded my Metallica catalog since the Black Album had come out. And so I was familiar with everything they played and it was, it was fantastic. I saw that show also. I saw that in California at the Cal Expo and I didn't get fight. It was Suicidal, Candlebox and Metallica. We showed up late, so we missed Suicidal, unfortunately. Um, And I was really impressed with Candlebox because they took a lot of shit that day. They and did. they played through their whole set. And I was like, you know what? I got, I got respect for that, man. That's amazing. And then Metallica opened up with Bread Fan. And I was like, holy shit, right on. And they went from Bread Fan, broke, didn't go into the mellow part, went right into Master Puppets. And I was like, fuck yes. Like, I was really excited. <laughs> it was a good time. Went with some, some dear friends. And it was, it was a good show. I saw them on that tour. I saw them... Three times on that tour, from what I remember, I saw them twice in the Meadowlands, and they played by themselves. And that was the neat thing about that show. So the album grew on me a little bit because I had listened to it, but it also grew on me because I had seen that tour three times. And when a band plays live, sometimes the songs resonate more than on tape, right? You know, right. It, it sounds a lot different live than it does. I, I agree. And I felt like I, I gained more respect for the record. Um, I still like the first four. That's my that's my deal with Metallica. Um, but it was neat because it was like one of the first concerts I kind of went to. I went by myself, which was crazy. And one time I went with my with my one of my good buddies. But I remember um, I remember paying a lot for the ticket because being in that area, you you got New Jersey, Philly, New York people trying to go see these shows. So right. you're paying money and you're in high school. You know what I mean? So I'm bu- I actually bought tickets off a kid in high school, and and he was like the he was like the kid that sold concert tickets. Like you know, we had one of those in our school. Like yep. you know, like Fast Times and Fast Times. Yeah. So I paid way too much for that show, but it was great. I went and again and saw them, and then um, I saw them in Philly at the old Spectrum, and we didn't have tickets. We just went to Philly like a bunch of idiots, and there was four of us, and they we went to Will Call. And they had four seats, second row. Oh, wow. And I was like, holy shit. And it was a great show. And and what you missed out on was when they played by themselves on that Black Run tour, they played for like three, three and a half hours. Right. And it was amazing. So the cool thing was it was like the last great tour to see them on, in my opinion, because they're still younger and they're playing mostly everything I love. And then I'm like, okay, you know, we deal with the black songs, but we're getting Battery, Damage Incorporated. We're getting all these, like, tunes. Where I'm like, holy shit, this is awesome. But that was, that was the concert for me, and that was in June or July of 92. It was before they did the Guns N' Roses run where I went, I want to do this for a living. Like, I remember watching James singing Sanitarium and like the red lights are on him and he's like really in front of me and i'm just like this is an amazing moment and it was like i need to try harder and i knew i was moving to reno and i knew i was like all right well i'm gonna put a band together when i get to reno and see what happens i don't even know where the hell reno is or any of that stuff but it was that was a turning point in my life so it's kind of funny how that tour was a really big influence on me in terms of taking a real shot at, at trying to make it, you know what I mean? Being a 17 year old kid and going, yeah, I want to do this. I want to do this for real. So that was huge for me. Um, yeah. What impact do you think this album had on metal? I know this is probably yeah. a loaded question, but I'm really curious because well, I have something I want to say after this that I think <laughs> is kind of be kind of cool. And I hope the listeners enjoy this little theory I have, but but tell me what you think the impact was. And you can tell me what it had on you, but I really want to know what you think it had on metal. 
well, I mean, me personally, it opened my eyes to a whole different genre, a whole different style of music that you know, I never would have gotten into had I stayed in Tonopah and just stuck with MTV for the rest of my life. Sure. Um, so, I mean, that's that was huge on me. But um, first and foremost, I mean, in 91 and 92, metal was king. I mean, it was cool to be a metalhead for like the first time ever. Like you said, cheerleaders were listening to it. Um, we would have to go on three, four, five, six, seven hour bus rides for high school sports. And we had a, fortunately we had a cassette player in the bus and the black album was on heavy rotation. We would listen to it all the time. And everybody didn't matter. Everybody was singing enter Sandman when it came on and, you know, played the whole thing through. And, you know, by the end, some people were sleeping, but I mean, (laughs) this is what happens because it's a long album, but um, it was, it's never a, a more popular moment in popular music for metal than right then. So, I mean, that, that's just, that's a huge impact at that time. And it, because of that, it changed the way the mainstream started looking at medical, eh, medical, geez. medical, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you need a little medical, <laughs> put me in the sanitarium. Um, it, it changed the way they really started looking at it, look at covering metal. You know, you'd start to see cover stories on Rolling Stone and, you know, music magazines that you never would have seen before that. Um, and it changed the way bands started writing songs. You know, they started getting more concise and limiting the amount of noodling they played, you know, in the middle of their tracks. And um, they went out and got better producers and started putting out albums. Um, and, you know, you can look at the first one that springs to mind immediately is um, Countdown to Extinction. Yep. And it's just a, a huge improvement production-wise from Rust in Peace to Countdown. Totally agree. And, and, you know, whether the songs are any better or worse, you can definitely agree that it's shorter. <laughs> you know, the, the songs weren't nearly as epic as the songs on Rust in Peace. Right. And, that, and that's just the first example off the top of my head. Um, but part of the problem with that is not every band was, you know, every metal band would adapt to that sort of... Um, that sort of style of, of playing, you know, a lot of bands wanted to keep doing what they were doing and a lot of bands tried to change and weren't as successful. And because of that, it led to a lot of rock stations just continually leaning on the black album and it caused them to play it and play it and play it. It's over and over and over and over again. I mean, just the immense popularity ultimately worked against metal as a genre because there wasn't enough space. There wasn't enough room for other bands to put their product out there, you know? And, it just it ended any chance that metal would ever have of being like number one in pop music, along with you know the rise of hip hop and grunge and and several other things. But um, I wouldn't say that you know the Black Album killed metal. That would be a little controversial. But right, <laughs> it, it definitely killed its time on top. I mean, after after about '92, it was much much cooler to be you know into grunge and and being into the Seattle scene rather than listening to. Metallica they they it was it's weird to me that it kind of felt dated to to really just lean heavily into metal and thrash and that sort of thing after 92 I don't so. think you're I don't think you're wrong here's here's my little theory my uh <laughs> I, I get a kick out of this because it, it'll be it's a fun topic to debate I feel like every metal band almost every metal band and I'm not talking about like underground stuff but like the big metal bands all had to put out a black album after yeah. that. So you had Testament put out a black album, Megadeth put out a black album, Anthrax put out a black album. And here's the interesting thing is every single one of those bands' careers went up from on that next album, and then they all went down. Yep. And Metallica really was the only one that kind of didn't go down. And, I, and I, I don't know if it was because those bands like couldn't write those tunes or they saw like, you know, this is the way it's supposed to go, but they just, that's not who they were. Or it was like a devil, you know, like a selling your soul to the devil. <laughs> like we, we want the money well, for the, our black album sounding album. And, um, and, and like, look, I went and revisited Sound of White Noise because I did not like that record when it came out because I'm a Belladonna guy and Among the Living is one of my favorite thrash albums ever. Right. But that album holds up. If you listen yeah. to that, I don't know if you listen to it lately. It's, oh, yeah. It's a damn good record, and 
it's funny how you, when you listen to records in different time periods, you get more, more of appreciation for them. And I really dig that record. And I think, you yeah. know, I think you had that weird split off where Pantera was like the only metal band that was flying the flag. You right. know what I mean? They were the only ones to be like, and I'm not, and like I said, for, for my friends here that are listening and, and for people I don't even know that are listening, hey, thank you for listening. But I'm not talking about, you know, metal bands. I'm not talking about death. I'm not talking about, you know, um, nuclear assault. I'm not talking about those type of bands. I'm not talking about your Iron Maidens and your priests and those bands. I'm talking about certain metal bands that took that road. I'm not saying everybody did. And I, I'm not saying that a bunch of bands were afraid to call themselves metal anymore. But there was a lot of bands that definitely shot away from that title. Because you could put Alice in Chains and you could put Soundgarden and say they're metal bands. But by putting the grunge label on them, it made them more, you know, acceptable. Does that make right. sense? Absolutely. And it, it's really, it has as much to do with Nirvana as it did the Black Album, to be honest, in my opinion. It's because when Nirvana started getting all the play, grunge became the thing and it became marketing. You know, do you, do you label the Alice in Chains album as a metal album or, this, or you know, Bad Motor Finger as metal? Or do you label it grunge because it's in the same geographical area, which is going to sell better? We're going to call it grunge, and and that's it. Great point. Great, and it and it sucks too because, like, the one thing I hate about music is the division of it. Because when I was a kid, I was totally into hair metal, and you know, obviously, the more I played guitar, the more my taste changed and expanded, which I don't think is a bad thing. But like, I can still put on a hair metal. I can put on under lock and key by Doc and be like, yeah, I dig this still. You know what I mean? There's some stuff that does not hold up whatsoever. But there's right. certain songs by those bands. So I'm like, yeah, I dig this. I still like that. Or like that solo is still a great solo and whatnot. But if the one thing that grunge did was make it uncool to play guitar solos and then it made this big weird division on what you could be or what you couldn't be. And then it, we got into this like subgenre hell where it seemed like there's has to be all these different subgenres, and it just got to the point where I remember when I was a kid, metal was more like just metal, like you liked metal, and then if you didn't, if you liked, let's say you liked Dawkins, it was metal, but then if you liked, I don't know, like if you liked Firehouse, you're like, oh, you listen to that crap, but you know, it, it still was like metal, you know what I mean? It wasn't, yeah. you know, and I think that's kind of a drag with with music, especially nowadays. It's like there's so many different subgenres on it i think it just hurts music in general in terms of like i think a lot of people are mostly prejudiced to styles of music that they don't even give a chance to if that makes sense you know i, I think you're right about that and i think a lot of that has to do with just pop music in general um when you start pushing music out to the masses the masses are going to react and they're and and human instinct is to lump things together Sure. Say, well, this sounds like this. This sounds like this. This sounds like this, and that's what happened to metal. Is you know, for a long time when it was more underground and when it was you know just kind of bubbling under the surface, and you didn't have all these people out there who were listening to the Black Album, for example, and all the soccer moms and cheerleaders. Love you, soccer moms and cheerleaders. But <laughs> <laughs> shout out soccer moms. Shout out soccer moms and cheerleaders. Hashtag. <laughs> <laughs> it, you know, when you don't have those folks. It just the masses listening to, to music like that, everybody's kind of on the same page because you're all just, you know, the underdog. You're all just in this little secret club. You're just, this is mine, you know, totally. you own this. This is, this is us. And, but then when it breaks through and it breaks out, that's when you start seeing, well, I have to give it to them now. And they're going to do something with it that I don't like. They're going to do something with it that I don't approve of. They're going to start putting, you know, hair bands over here and they're going to start putting, you know, firehouse here, dock in there they're going to start putting Metallica here. And by doing that, it just, it really did. It started the classification of rock music to, to just kind of devolve and turn into what it is now. And it's a shame. It's a shame. And one reason I think it's a shame too, is because it's like, it sounds kind of funny, right? But like, I, I like, I love the new Iron Maiden record. I think it's fucking cool. And it's one of those things like I like Iron Maiden and I've liked Iron Maiden since I was like, fucking 12 years old and I don't give a shit. I like Iron Maiden. You know what I mean? And it's like, yeah. but I also like Elder and I also like, 
you know, bask in like these underground bands, you know, that are cool as shit to me. Um, and I think, you know, there's a place for all that stuff, you know, and, and you see that resurgence in Maiden, which is, I think is rad. Um, but I, I, I think it sucked that we're all guilty of making those choices. You know what I mean? Because we were right in the middle of like that enormous shift where, and, and the thing too with grunge is I always hated when people dogged on it because I liked grunge. I mean, I love Mother yeah. Love Bone. I, there's so many bands. I was not into the more the punk sounding Seattle stuff, even though that stuff is really fucking cool. Um, I loved I loved the first two part of three Pearl Jam records I thought were great. I love Dirt. It's one of my favorite records in the 90s. Bad Motor Finger and Super Unknown I absolutely love. And I hate it when my metal friends are like, oh, you like that shit? I'm like, yeah, I do. It's right. it, I like it. I'm sorry, but I also like Vulgar Display of Power, and I also like the White Zombie album. I can't pronounce. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I like those records. You know, and I think, and the funny thing is, those records are so dated now. Oh my God, it's crazy. And and so yeah. I want to I want to swing it back before we end the show, back into the Black Album. Um, Final thoughts on the record. Do you catch yourself listening to it at all besides what we did, you know, to prepare for this show? It's not, it's not in my rotation, really. Um, you change I, the I, channel when you hear it on the radio? Sometimes. I mean, it, it depends on the song, honestly. Um, if wherever I May Roam comes on, it stays. But yeah, um, a lot of their album stuff, you know, I'll, I'll change the channel. You mentioned um, Sad But True. That's one that I'll change. And uh, two words for you, Kid Rock. Oh, great point. Thanks for fucking that's... running that for me. <laughs> Shit, Sorry, man. I that's... totally forgot that's... that he sampled that. That's what ruined it for me. Fuck. It just, that that just absolutely hate, shredded I hate that song. You. I hate you right now. <laughs> and I've known you for fucking almost 30 years now. I hate you for doing that to me. I didn't do it. Blame Bob Ritchie. Oh, God. Uh, so. <laughs> I'm not going to get that out of my head. Um, oh, well, I don't should have ended I, a little sooner, I guess. <laughs> I don't play it. I don't play it at all. If I hear it, it makes me smile. You know what I mean? I think, I yeah. think of like, I think of that concert. I think of, you know, taping Inner Salmon on a cassette tape player, those things, things that you don't have that anymore. So it's kind of neat to like have right. that memory. I, I think about, you know, watching a band I really looked up to. And, and and the biggest thing for me, self-indulgent, but we are talking about Metallica. It was really cool to open up for Queensryche in 98, or 97, excuse me. And James Hetfield was on the side of the stage watching our show, bobbing his head. And that was like, fuck, that's cool. I didn't see it, thank God, because I probably would have screwed up whatever the hell I was playing. But that was a big moment in my life where I can look back and go, you know, I learned so many of your damn riffs. You are like literally him and Iomi are the riff kings to me. He has the best right hand rhythmically, I think, in all of metal hard rock. Um, that was an enormous moment for me. So I look back at the album and I smile and I do think about how much the demographic changed. It's 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 it lands in my top five of Metallica records because the rest of them are just kind of like whatever. You know what I mean? And that'd be another fun discussion to like, where do you rank your records? Um, but I think it's cool because it made you go backwards. See, it made me appreciate, but it made you go backwards and start finding other stuff. So let me ask you one more question before we get out of here and close up this awesome. And I've had a great time talking about this record, by the way. Um, Same here. I really appreciate it. What's your, what, what's your favorite Metallica record now? Like what, what's that one that's your favorite now? Um, for me, my favorite, and, it, and again, this is more of a time and place thing, is um, Ride the Lightning. Nice. I, I, I like Ride the Lightning just tiny, tiny bit better than Master of Puppets. And it's because I was able to get into Ride the Lightning before Master of Puppets. That is really what it comes down to. Um, I'm, I'm so there with you, man. I, I like Master just a little bit more than Ride because I think Master is almost a perfect record. And I think the thing that should not be is better than escape. And that's what puts the edge over for me for master. Plus I sank my teeth into master and I did not have the tab book to ride the lightning until <laughs> a little bit later. Um, and I think both those records are like a and B, right? I mean, they're so yeah, fucking close a, together. A and one, a or one and one, a, yeah, it, it really is. I mean, that those records are great. And uh, it, it's kind of, it's, it was a cool conversation today because 
you came from a town where like it was you were basically force fed what to like through MTV, which right. so college must have been like an enormous experience for you of just like your mind being blown on all this music you never heard and like holy shit, oh, yeah. there's this and that and that and probably probably everything changed for you, you know. And I know for college, for me, it did too because I was getting into heavier stuff that I didn't get into. There's like gateway. It's kind of funny when people talk about gateway drugs, but there's like gateway music and metal. And I remember when I first heard Pantera, I was like, oh, shit. And then Jason Beard turned me on to Corrosion, the blind record, which is like, it doesn't hold up nowadays, I don't think. But, but at the time? Um, at the time, it was great. I think the tones is why it doesn't hold up. But yeah. um, Pepper was such a great addition to that band. Um, I got into Slayer more through Jason Beard. Um, and, and I wouldn't have gotten into any of that stuff. You know what I mean? So it was kind of like that gateway. So it was interesting that Metallica Black is kind of the gateway record for you. You took the words right out of my mouth. You took the words right out of my mouth. Because I, when, I, when I was thinking about this, I was preparing for this. You know, I thought about where I was at the time and just put myself in that position. Had I not heard anything off the Black Album or the Black Album in its entirety before I went to college, we wouldn't have had anything to talk about when it came to music. Yeah. Because I would have had no clue what you guys were, you know, talking about when you came, talked about Pantera and you brought yeah. in, um, you know, Vulgar Display of Power. You bring that in and I'm like, Okay, well, I, I got a little, you know, frame of reference because I know a little Metallica. So yeah. it's like Metallica. Okay, I'll listen to that. And mind blown, you know, it it was definitely one of those things that hooked me into a much, much larger world of metal. And I wouldn't have had that if not for this album. So it's it's definitely a touchstone for me. Yeah, because we would always, we would argue to death over Hysteria compared to High and Dry, which I think you're still And we still do. <laughs> You're still wrong about that one, but I'm still I'm absolutely one thousand percent right. On that I've look. I'll, That's another I'll just, podcast. <laughs> I have a better appreciation for hysteria because of you, my friend. I will I will give you that much, and vice versa with High and Dry. High and Dry is a great fucking record. I mean, High and Dry is like, it's just that it's so raw and rad. It's like one of my favorite. Like me and Moots talk about this a, a lot. Like, find an A plus record where every song's an A plus. Like there's no A minus, there's no B plus on the record. Like find me a record that every single song, it's so goddamn hard because you go oh, yeah. through classic records and that and and really like High and Dry to me is an A. I, there's not a bad song on it for me, you know. And I do think back in the old days with eight songs on a cassette, nine songs on a cassette, right. I think those albums became more classic because I think there was less less of a chance you were going to have a dud or two. You know, killer, no filler, right? Right. <laughs> less of a chance. So let's talk one more thing real quick. If you're going to rank the Black Album and we're going to give it a grade, let's just do stupid school grades, right? What are you giving the record? Overall, um, I would have to give the Black Album a, a solid A- and... The reason for that is just really it's it's historic. I mean, it's it's like I said, a touchstone. It's the gateway. I've heard much better albums since then. There, you know, I've I've heard A plus albums from metal bands since then. But for the Black Album, as overplayed as it's been, and its grade has slipped over the years, I still have to put it at A minus just for its significance, both to you know mainstream culture and me personally. I give it a C plus. Um, production wise, I give it an A. Um, historically, you could give it an A. Um, I feel like there's too many throwaway tracks. I also feel like it's not my Metallica. Um, yeah, C plus for me. But I do see and appreciate your A minus because it does make sense to me too. It's it's really the it's it's really the record that almost pushed me and guys like me and girls like me. You know, I'm not girls like me. Girls like you, about, but girl, yeah, you know, <laughs> girls and guys. I'm trying to be, you know, real. Let you know people know there was definitely girl metalheads. You know what I mean? Oh, it wasn't a guys club, right? But I feel like it pushed us out of Metallica, and I feel like it 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 got a whole new audience for that band, which really. You can't think of many bands that did that. Maybe ACDC between Bon Scott and uh, Brian Johnson and Van Halen with with Roth and Hagar. But there's not a lot of bands that had that second wave of popularity, you know, and Metallica did. And, you know, hats off to them. 
Um, did not like the direction they went for a long, long time, unfortunately. Um, but one thing I'm going to lead to end this conversation is I still respect that band. They're still trying to put out material. I think that's rad. I think it's hard to do in your late 50s to put out music that would hold a candle to stuff when you were in your early 20s and broke and hungry and pissed off. It's hard to be pissed off when you're a millionaire, multimillionaire, and you're 58 and you got kids. And I mean, what are you, you're not getting pissed off at the same things. I think the music changes. But I give them a lot of respect for still trying, you know, to do that. Um, and honestly, man, they're still killing it, dude. I mean, they still yeah. sell out. And like, I never ever would have thought that would have been the case 30 years ago. So, Black Album. There's your full review. I hope you guys enjoyed the show today. We're a brand spanking new podcast. Anything you can do to help us out, um, a review on iTunes would be awesome or Apple Podcasts is now. Um, follow on social media. So drop us an, uh, uh, an email. Anything you want to do to help us out, spread the word, make a huge difference for the show. Bredo, thanks for coming on, man. I really appreciate your insight on this record, and I knew it would be a really fun, engaging conversation. Uh, anything you want to add before we get out of here, my friend? Um. Well, first of all, thank you. I, I really appreciate you bringing me on. It was a hell of a time. And you know, I'd like to do it again at some point if you got Absolutely. space for me. For sure. And uh, I love what you've done with it so far with the podcast and you know, continued success there for sure. Um, the only thing that I'd want to add is um, you know, one of, the, one of the outline questions here was you asked where, where I thought the band might be headed after the album, um, not the barbershop. That's it. <laughs> I love it. Um, maybe we'll have you back on again and we'll talk about No More Tears. Because there is there is a couple of great albums in 91. 91's a transition, yeah. a very transition year for music in general. And No More Tears is a record that isn't really talked about in in that time period. And that record was fucking enormous. So let's have you back on the show and let's talk about that record before the year's over because you know, that's another 30 years. I mean, you have Pearl Jam 10, you have that one, you have the Black Album, um, you have uh, Nirvana Nevermind, you've got Chili Peppers, Blood Sugar, Sex Magic. I mean, 91's a pretty special year for music. Um, question. Foreign Lawful Carnal Knowledge, which is another interesting album for that time period. A very yeah. transition. If you do your homework, ladies and gentlemen, and you go back and look at 91 to 92, it's a very interesting time period in terms of what was huge and what stayed huge. Both Use Your Illusion records were in 91, and a yep. lot of those records were within six to eight weeks of each other. And, and it was very interesting because, you know, I don't think really grunge hit until 92 personally, where like it the doors got, up, yeah. you know what I mean? It got knocked down big time. And maybe because I just saw that because I was in college in 92, but I didn't feel it in high school, if that makes sense. But, uh, yeah, it's. I want to talk more about this year and try to get some more of these quick pods out. Even though it wasn't too quick today, I felt like it was a great podcast and we had a shitload of fun. So, my friend, stay safe, dude. Enjoy your week. Thanks for coming on the pod and talking about the Black Album, the 30th anniversary. Thank you, brother. I'll talk to you soon, my friend. Absolutely.